You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff, here with Jim Callis, physically here with Jim Callis, and also with Jonathan Mayo, who is sadly not here with us in the desert in Arizona, but will be here soon. The Arizona Fall League is now underway. One of our favorite times of the year. Uh, We just had, as we're recording this, just had opening day yesterday. Looking forward to Kumar Rocker uh, making his debut in the Fall League tonight. And we are going to dig into the Fall League a bit. Also, we have an interview with our pipeline pitching prospect of the year, Phillies, Andrew Painter. We're going to talk to him. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about uh, some of, more of our year-end awards, the hitting prospect of the year and our prospect team of the year, which we previewed a bit on last week's episode. We will reveal that team here. Uh, and then we will, as always, wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. Jonathan. Yes, sir. Sorry, you're not here with us. I'm, I'm, I'm there spiritually, and this is, if I'm not mistaken, Jason, is this your first time? You are mistaken. Uh, <laughs> it's been a it while. It has been a while. Calling me from okay. driving somewhere in the fall league back in 2013 or 14, back in the day. So I remember getting a joint phone call from you both. Yeah, that would have been 2000, 2014. That might, I think that might have been my last time hearing it. We probably had, we had the top down, so you couldn't hear us. Ha, ha, ha. You, you both have a convertible Mustang uh, Arizona Fall League stories, which I didn't realize. Jim has one, too. Um, yeah, so it's 1,000 degrees out here. Dry heat. Um, and, Jim and I, Jim and I have the air conditioner off so that, so that you can hear us. So by the end of this podcast, we'll be sweaty mess. Uh, team players right yeah um but yeah we uh so far right off the bat uh fun in the desert we had a couple media days uh the fall league hosted a couple media days where all the players came out got headshots taken interviews done uh jim and jesse borek interviewed the top prospect for 27 of the 20 uh, 27 of the 30 organizations out here and have a, a few uh, to pick up and those interviews will be on the team websites and on the AFL website and also we'll go in our uh, our team by team AFL overviews which will be coming to your favorite team's website uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks so keep an eye out for those and then we got underway last night and uh, Jim early impressions from day one of the fall league yeah, I mean, this will shock you to hear, Jonathan. Fall League is a lot of fun. Um, no. We saw many top prospects in action. Uh, first game I did, uh, Jordan Lawler really stood out. Uh, and it's funny, I, I talked to him after the game, and he stood out not just for his performance. He had two hits. He had a home run that Jason and I tried to get uh, accurately depicted on stack cast. It shortchanged him by about 50 feet, and the, the tracking was off. It showed his ball getting caught in They're the still left working field. on it. Yeah, it was not 361 (laughs) feet because it went over the 390 foot sign. Um, But he had so he had two hits, home run, two walks, two steals. Didn't do much in the field because he only had one ball hit to him. 
And I was talking to him after the game, and obviously he's supremely talented, and he's number six overall pick in the draft a couple of years ago. And it was, and I asked him what he thought his best attribute was, you know, because he's he's a potential five tool shortstop, and he said none of his physical tools. He thought it was his ability to remain on an even keel, um, which I thought was interesting. It was, he struck out in his last at bat against who was it? Connor Selby was it? Was a pitcher I was not that familiar with who came out throwing ninety eight, ninety nine. And, and he worked the deep count. I think it was full count and struck out on the slider. And Ian, we were talking about that. And, and I mean, I don't know if you've talked to Jordan Lawler much, J- Jonathan, but for a kid who's 20 years old, mm-hmm. very mature, very polished, uh, Diamondbacks are going to love him. Their fans are going to love him. So anyway, that was kind of cool. And then I think we'd even talked about maybe on last week's podcast or maybe it was off the air, just how I think we were all kind of happy. The Heston Kerstad, who was the number two overall pick back in 2020, and literally went two years to the day before he could make his pro debut because he had myocarditis and a lot of expectations and, and couldn't play and how it was good that he was healthy and looking forward to watching him play here. And he hit, I think, the longest home run I've ever seen hit at Scottsdale Stadium. He hit it over the, I think it's had many different names over the years, but what is now the Charo Lounge in right field. There was no stat cast, but it was a blast. And, and just talking to him, we talked to him at Media Day too. You could kind of sense a relief um, that he's playing again. Like, he's just happy to be able to play every day. And it was interesting with him, you know, I mean, that was a kind of a surprise pick, as we know, when he, he went number two overall, and it came right on the heels of Adley Rutschman going number one overall the year before to them. And a lot of Orioles fans were like, what did we just do? This is a shocking pick, and he didn't play for two years. And I asked him if he felt any pressure, if there was, you know, just the expectations that come with the number two pick. And he said no, that he thought nobody had higher expectations of him than him. Um, and so he wasn't worried about what anybody else is, is thinking or hoping he can do because he thinks and hopes he can do more than that, which I thought was a good answer. So like both those guys were, were very good interviews um, after we talked to them on media day too, and, and obviously very talented. So a, a very fun first day out here in Arizona. I think it's great with you know, Kerstad that he's probably getting to the point now where he can just go about being a player, uh, you know, and the story won't be, oh, thank goodness he's back. Uh, but here he is just player out in the fall league trying to get some more reps in. And, you know, he's starting to kind of turn that corner and get to that where, where maybe the expectations of being a high pick, like are welcome because he he couldn't live up to any expectations for, for such a long time because of everything he had to go through. So Jonathan, uh, in between games. So Jim told you about the impressive performances by Lawler in the day game and then Gunnar Henderson in the night game. Gunnar Henderson. (laughs) <laughs> Look at the pressure you put on wow. poor Heston Kirsten. Wow! Yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, I was just lo- previewing a <laughs> looking ahead. No, I was previewing a, a tweet that's about to go out about Gunnar Henderson uh, winning the hitting prospect of the year award. Um, uh, yeah, and Heston Kirsten. So, in between though, Jim uh, witnessed his first haboob. What'd you call me? Have, <laughs> have you been out here for a for a, a sandstorm for a haboob? Uh, I have not. However, my my sister and family live in the desert in Israel, and I have experienced uh, something something similar uh, out there. So I am familiar with what that is like. And it was crazy because you know shooting the video of the night game, the haboob was. I had to literally hold down the tripod because the haboob was trying to blow my phone and the tripod across the press box. Uh, shaking, uh, my computer was shaking. Papers were shaking. It was, it was crazy weather for the first couple innings of the night game. 
Yeah, I, I want to say that a game actually got haboobed out a few years ago. I think I, I think maybe Will Bohr was covering a game, and uh, that was my first experience with a haboob. Um, all right, so I uh, mentioned that Kumar Rocker uh, will be making his. It's not, I guess, not technically his pro debut. I, I don't know how you and say like he's, unofficial pro debut. Well, no, well, it's not because it's not a. It's a like an off season game. Like he's official. Organized That's why I call it unofficial. Debut will be next April, and he pitched professionally in the right, Frontier so that, League. So, but it's like his first time pitching in a game where they're really keeping score while a member of the Rangers. Yeah, a ma- major league uh, affiliated yeah, team. Organized ball. Yeah, so he's uh, he is starting on uh, day two of the fall league out here, and uh, I think I even you know asked Jim. Um, on media day when he was, when uh, Kumar was there, you know, what we should expect from him, because obviously leading up to the draft, it was a very, very controlled situation for him pitching in the independent league uh, where he was going just a few innings at a time and only pitched a handful of times. Uh, what do you guys think we're going to see out of Kumar here in Arizona? I, you know, I think that obviously they're going to have to kind of, keep them somewhat on a uh, most of the pitchers were you know uh i guess outside of brian Wu, who was so sharp that he was able to go an extra inning um but i think that um you know what three innings if he commands the baseball is probably gonna be a pretty tight pitch count um so it's gonna be de- you know uh, uh, dependent maybe on how he commands the baseball and and keeps base runners off but i, I would think three would be the max um and you know we'll see he hasn't really pitched uh, a lot period so um i'm trying to go in with low expectations um i'm sure he'll miss a good amount of bats uh, and then we'll kind of see how much he finds a strike zone and that will kind of be determined what kind of like how quote-unquote successful the, the outing is yeah i think the rangers will handle him with care he might be on a i, I think he almost certainly will be on a tighter leash than most of the Starters out here, you know, it'll be different because I, I I know when he pitched in independent ball when he's kind of showcasing himself in the spring before the draft, talking to scouts, they felt like it was it was kind of like a showcase atmosphere. You know, he was going out in the first inning, pitching to the radar gun, showing how hard he could throw. Second inning, he was trying to snap off the sliders as hard as he could to show you that the slider was there, his wipeout, you know, his his best weapon, and then like the command wasn't, you know, it was more about showcasing stuff than than pitching, if that makes sense. And I think that'll obviously be different now. Um, I, I think it's just, you know, a matter of, hey, let's get you acclimated to facing some pro hitters and some game situations so you're, you know, good to go next year. I'll, I'll be very curious. I don't even think it'll be AFL results-driven, Jonathan. I'll be very curious if they start him in A next year um, after they did that with his former teammate Jack Leiter this year, which, you know, I, nobody's writing Jack Leiter off, but he did not have a very good season in A. Um, I would, you know, Kumar's going to be what a year older than Jack. So they probably right, won't send right. him to double A. I would think if everything goes well here and, and this will be you know, unlike Jack who didn't pitch in a game before he went to double A this year, this will give Kumar, you know, some exposure to double A level competition before he goes there. But yeah, it's, I, I don't know what to expect. I mean, I think it, like, I honestly think the most important number really to the Rangers is going to be innings that, you know, my guess is if he makes six starts, he'll pitch 20 or so innings and they'd be happy with that. 
Yeah, I agree. Okay, back to the other side of the ball. Uh, something we did last year that we uh, found, to, I think, I, I won't speak for you guys, but uh, I found it to be even more fun than I expected it to be. We did a total bases pool. Is it a pool? Sure. What, what makes something a pool? Anyway, it was fantasy fantasy league. Four, four feet of water? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we each, the three of us, picked five players uh, from the Arizona Fall League. We did a, did a draft, snake draft, as always. And, um, and all we did was just count up the total bases over the course of the Arizona Fall League season. And then uh, because there is such fluctuation with the rosters, players leaving, uh, early and, and injuries, we we allowed for replacements if a guy either uh, stop just stop playing for for any reason. So that was a lot of fun. Um, this year we expanded it a bit. Uh, Sam Dykstra and Jesse Borick, who will be covering a lot of games out here, joining us, and uh, we don't have to live in the past. We won't talk about how last year's season went. How you won uh, last year? Yeah, other than to mention that I did. Yeah. Win. Uh, but uh, Jesse Borak came away with the first pick, uh, random drawing to uh, set the selection order. Jesse got first pick, and uh, no surprise to anyone, took Jordan Walker. Uh, had you had you guys had the first pick? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe would you have taken Walker first? Yes, I ate the, the yes, as you know, because we were sitting here the first. Four picks. I had the fourth pick unfolded exactly right, as I had mock. my mock draft. It unfolded exactly like I thought they would. So, yes, I would have taken Jordan Walker number one overall. Although I said in last week's podcast that I thought Matt Mervis and Davison De Los Santos were perhaps the best bets to lead the league in home runs. And those were the number two and three picks. I had number this. four because I thought I thought Jonathan was going to go. Oh, I put these in there. I put these down in the right. You're right. Yeah, I, I thought Jonathan might go Jordan Lawler, go for the polished hitter with some power. I, I would have taken Jordan Lawler. It, it pained me a little bit to have the fourth pick, and the first three picks went in exactly the order I would have taken them in. I was I was hoping Jason would not take Matt Mervis, but but he did. So, sure. and then Sam was sad because he was he had the fifth pick, and he was hoping to get Davison De Los Santos, who who swung very aggressively yesterday. Um, and, and worried me a little bit, but uh, he does have prodigious power in BP. Yeah, so I I went with uh, with Mervis second. He was the minor league total bases leader this year, um, hoping that carries over to the fall league. And then Jonathan, you took Jordan Lawler, who we've already spoken about on this episode of the podcast. And then Jim, uh, yeah. Davison De Los Santos, you said he he swung aggressively, um, and I, I think that's something you can safely uh, project to see throughout the rest of the fall. He, he, that, that's his mo. He he hits the ball far when he hits it, but there will be some some swings and misses. But I, th- I think in terms of raw power, I think he's right there with Jordan Walker in terms of raw power uh, in the league. And then the fifth pick of the first round yeah. went to Sam Dykstra, and he took Henry Davis, which I think. To uh, us, us veterans of the league, <laughs> we were a little, uh, prob- probably a, a little surprised by that, just because he's a catcher and catchers typically don't play as much as the other position players in the league. But maybe I don't. Are we going to see him in other positions in the fall league? 
I think he's probably will DH a little bit. I, I'm more concerned just because he seems to get hit every other time he's up, and you know, um, you know, so that that doesn't help your total base. Just the same, you know, I have some picks later on of guys who draw a ton of walks. In some ways, De Los Santos is a better pick because he's not going to draw walks. Um, so, uh, but, uh, you know, you worry about a guy who's got you know, such command of the strike zone. And, and of course, Henry Davis did get hit by a pitch yesterday. Um, but, um, you know, but yeah, I think the playing time, even if he DHs once a week, um, or, or plays, you know, a little outfield or whatever, you know, they decide to move him around a, a little tiny bit, like they started to at the end of the year. I think his main focus is going to be working on his catching because that's the thing he needs to work on, especially after so much missed time, and that will cost him some some at-bats. Yeah, very first at-bat of the fall league, he got plunked. Uh, I think it was a breaking ball that, that caught him in, in the leg around the knee somewhere. It didn't look to be serious at all. But how, he got hit 20 times in the regular season in – like 59 games. 59 games, right. And like anyone else who was hit 20 or more times played in at least, I think it was 89 games. And most of them were like 100 plus. How, how does he get hit so often? He stood pretty close to the plate yesterday. I mean, I think he's on top of the plate. and He's kind of in a, in a pronounced uh, – he's, he's like in a crouch at the, at the plate. I don't know if that prevents him from – getting out of the way somehow, but well, there's a lot of guys in college baseball. I mean, it's toned down. It used to be more extreme, but there's a lot of guys in college baseball who basically don't, you know, you, you learn in college baseball, we're going to get on base by any means possible. And guys, you know, don't get out of the way of the ball. Um, and it could just be that mentality. I mean, he got hit. Well, it's in, he, you know, his, his in 2021, he got hit, you know, his draft year, he got hit 11 times in, in 50 games. And as a pro, he's been hit 20 times in 67 yeah. games. So, I mean, I, I'd have to think, especially because, I mean, he got, listen, one of the, he got hit in the wrist, and that's the reason why he missed so much time. You know, I haven't, I haven't actually seen him hit in person, um, but I'm wondering if his hands are almost, you know, in the strike zone from the get go. So, it, you know, it's hard for him if he's, if he's tends in his setup at the plate to be so close to the plate that, Getting out of the way might could conceivably be letting a you know a ball in the inside corner go by as a strike. You know there may be some adjustments he's going to have to make if the you know if it continues to to happen at that rate and also leads to injuries. I mean it's one thing to get a ball on the on the shoulder or, or you know the backside or something like that, but if you, you, you can't keep getting hit on the wrist because that, that's going to lead to a lot of time on the injured list. Okay, uh, let's go through well, – we're not going to go through the entire draft here, but uh, Jim, did you have a particular favorite pick in this draft? Did you get somebody that you thought you might not get or do you think you picked somebody that's going to be a, a surprise? Or Yeah, I mean, I, it was Jim, interesting. We talked about this. Obviously, we, Jason and I were talking about the draft um, – it felt like there were less obvious power hitters. Like if, like maybe it was only because there were three of us last year, but it were, there were even when my second pick, I was like, well, there isn't really like a lot of obvious sluggers I want to take. I, I don't know. I, I basically, after I took Davidson De Los Santos, I focused on guys who I thought would get a lot of total bases because they'd get a lot of hits and hit some doubles, but weren't. I, I don't think any of my other four guys are sluggers. 
But I but I, I like my last pick is like a second mm-hmm. last pick in the draft, Aaron Zavala, who who rewarded me with a home run yesterday for my five total bases on day one. But I think Aaron Zavala is is like a, a sneaky. I think he's a really good hitter. A little concerned they might draw some walks down here. Don't want, we're all anti walk in the in the total base pool. But I but I like Aaron Zavala. I think he could have a big fall league. Uh, Jim's team, by the way, Davison De Los Santos, Nick Gonzalez, Matt McLean, Nick York, and Aaron Zavala. Uh, Jonathan, your team, Jordan Lawler, Noel B. Marte, Zach Geloff. I'll let you. I'll let you say the next one because you. I think you picked him strictly so you could say it. Edouard Julien. <laughs> yeah, it's getting even better. And uh, <laughs> I've been working on. Oh, and and Kyron Perry. <laughs> That's right. Didn't even we realize. always have Paris. Uh, how about you? Any, anyone? <sighs> Yeah, I actually like Jim's Aaron Zavala pick the best. Um, no, I, I did like that pick. You you actually, Jason, uh, got the guy I wanted. I wanted Parker Meadows. Uh, I think you too. Yeah, you you have a, a a strategy. I've noticed. I think it was last year too, where you know the 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 inclination might be to go for the like the top top prospects. And you, I think you you pay a little more attention to performance, thus taking Matt Mervis in the first round, for instance. And I, like I, I kind of like that strategy. I was hoping Meadows would get to me at the end, you know. And a lot of the guys that I took outside of taking Jordan Lawler first, I was paying attention to how guys finished. So like Noel V. Marte did not have a great year, but he was red hot at the end of the year. Um, Kyron Paris also did not have a great year, but August and September really swung the bat well. So I'm I'm relying on uh, them being able to carry it over. Zach Geloff was good at the beginning of the year, then got hurt, and you know had a little trouble shaking the rust off. So I'm kind of I'm hoping to, that he returns to the form he showed over the first couple months of the season. So, um, but especially with with Marte and Paris, those are guys who I'm like, well, they finished the season. Uh, strongly, I think they were both on our our final hottest hitters list, and that's why I, I went with those guys. Yeah, I uh, I thought that was probably the case. Well, I didn't know I didn't know for sure if that was the case with Paris, but I had also noticed the same thing, and I, I took a look at the same thing at guys who were hot down the stretch, and also guys who you know sometimes I take a look at guys who haven't played a full season; they're making up time, and you know for some of these guys, they've already played. 120 games and you know that's true you guys have been out here enough to see that sometimes when guys get out here they're just burned out and you you know hard to know who that's going to be the case for when uh when picking in this pool but you can look and see a guy's played 125 games already maybe he's a a candidate to be one of those players the other key too is uh like you hope for some luck in that like if you have an outfielder he's on a team where maybe they fall short of outfielders for some reason. So you get the kids. I think most of these guys are going to play four times a week. Maybe not Henry Davis as a catcher, but you hope you're in a situation like nobody took him last year. Nelson Velasquez, who wound up leading the league in total bases was literally playing six days a week for Mesa because they were shorthanded in the outfield. And it just, we, by the point we realized how good he was, nobody needed a replacement, but like, so that's like the, if you could project who's going to get hurt out here and maybe, you know, create more opportunity that could be a boon as well. Wow, Jim wishing uh, for no, I wish uh, injury on anybody in particular except for the <laughs> ten players on both your teams. I'm gonna I'm gonna share the slacks that say otherwise. 
All right. So it talked a little bit about guys who are hot down the stretch who got picked in our AFL total bases pool. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about some guys who are hot all year. We're going to talk about our hitting and pitching prospects of the year, and we are going to talk to our pitching prospect of the year. That was the Phillies' Andrew Painter. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jonathan Mayo. Very pleased to welcome in to podcast uh, for the first time. Uh, and that's Philly's pitching prospect, Andrew Painter. Andrew, thank you so much for taking some time after what's been, a, and I'm sure, a very long yet fulfilling year for you. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I wanted to get to the sort of the, the, the crux of the reason to have you on other than you had a great year. Um, and, you know, we wanted to, I kind of wanted to talk to you ever since I met you, I think in spring training for, for a couple minutes, but uh, I wanted to officially tell you that you are the MLB pipeline pitching prospect of the year. So congratulations. Uh, I know you're not in it right now for, for awards and those are all secondary, but I'm just curious, like your thoughts on being recognized for, uh, there's no way to slice up anything your year but other than astounding yeah uh i mean it was great you know just to kind of get like you know it's always great to like get any award of course uh you know first like being recognized just in the organization itself uh but then once you kind of expand on that kind of like you know you get you kind of you know hear you hear everything that's going on within the philly system and it's easy to look at that stuff but then once you know you kind of get that recognition to see you know how you're how you're doing in the year compared to everyone else you know across all 30 teams uh you know, so once once I figured that out, you know, heard that recognition, recognition, uh, I mean, that was it was an honor. Because it's one thing you're paying attention to what you're doing, and maybe it's easy to pay attention to what the guy next to you is doing in in the organization. But even if you if you are one who likes to pay attention, I would imagine you can't really have any idea of scope. You're so focused, laser focused on your thing. On you know, are you awards aside, are you able now to sort of take a step back and be like, okay, I don't think I could have drawn this up any better than it turned out yeah absolutely uh in season it, you know six days a week so you're always you're you're constantly moving so there's never time to kind of like sit down and like think about what you're doing um so now it's you know once i got into the off season it's kind of like you know that debrief time to where you kind of look back on it and um you know in the moment you don't really realize like you know what's going on and it's just because everything's moving so fast but you know outside of it now it's, it's cool to look back at It'd be moving so fast, even if you'd spend all year in Clearwater, but you, you had to pack your bags a couple of times. Um, I know everyone sets certain goals, and and I would imagine that it's often a goal to try to earn a promotion. But, I mean, is there – I'm sure that you have 
a high value of what you're able to do. But in a million years, did you think, yeah, no, I want to get to double A this year? I mean, when was was it when you got to Jersey City that that entered your mind? Or, or you know, let, tell me about what was going on in your thought process. Yeah, uh, I mean, going into the year, you know, my goal was, all right, let's get to Jersey first. Um, so that, that was a big thing. And once I got to Jersey and it was kind of, you know, seeing a little bit of success there, uh, then it kind of, you know, after a couple starts, kind of came to the equation. It's like, all right, like, um, it's it's a possibility to get to double A here. Uh, and, you know, but I mean, it was all on my controls. All I could do out there was go out there and pitch. And, and you know, luckily it worked out. You seemed, uh, at least by the numbers, and then I did get some confirmation in, in talking to your farm director a little bit, that you kind of got better as you moved up. Um, and better can be defined in a whole number of things. Obviously, you know, you're just looking at the numbers, you, you walk fewer guys and things like that. But what were some of the things that you could, that you found yourself being able to do as you started facing a higher level of, of competition? Uh, I think it was just once you got up, um, even if you, you know, you were making mistakes and they weren't being capitalized, it was more of like the thought of, knowing that, all right, like I'm going to get away with less mistakes here. They're better hitters. They have better approaches. Um, so I was always trying to stay ahead of it with that. And, and uh, like command wise and, and also on the slider, it was always, it was constantly trying to improve on that every day and catch play and in bullpens. Cause I knew eventually, like if I kept on doing what I was doing at low, a, like I was going to run, eventually I was going to hit a, a roadblock. Um, so I was constantly trying to get better in that aspect. So like on the command wise, uh, I knew, you know, I finally figured out once I got to Jersey, it was like how important it was to get ahead in counts and how much easier pitching got when you're throwing in those high leverage pitcher counts. Um, so like that was, that was kind of what went well for me. And, you know, you see the walk numbers, they went, you know, they went straight down, like they were down a ton. Um, so that was really it for me. It was really just prioritizing getting ahead in those counts and, and racing to get to two strikes um, and earning that right to expand out of the zone uh, with an off-speed like the slider. You know, I, I think it's interesting because it might be human inclination to as you move up and you know oh i can't get away with mistakes then i better make the perfect pitch you know rather than oh i'm just i'm going to still go after him you know was there a balance you had to strike with reminding yourself of that uh and just trusting your stuff well knowing yeah i need to tighten the slider up i need to use my curveball more i need to use my change up more whatever it is and we'll get to that in a little bit too but just in terms of because i've talked to other prospects with really good stuff who like they start moving up and all of a sudden like, well, th this guy can hit my 97 mile an hour fastball. So I, I, if I don't put it on the, on the black, I'm in trouble. You know, how did you keep yourself from falling into that trap? Um, so that's what kind of what I did once I got the high, uh, it was, you know, constantly overthinking and, and thinking too much, like, Oh, I got to make the perfect pitch here. Um, and I got hit around a little bit my first start. Uh, and then coming back right after that, you know, it was, it was a strong bounce back. And that was kind of why I realized I was like, all right, you know, the transition, like maybe, you know, my first start high, it wasn't the greatest, but uh, then I saw, you know, how I adjusted and how my stuff played there. And I was like, you know, it basically played just about the same. So then when I made that transition to double A, I just kind of went in with that mindset. Like, I'm just going to throw my best stuff. I'm going to pitch as if, you know, I wasn't an I, and I'm just going to do everything that I've been doing and trust it. And I mean, it worked well. Yeah, I'll say. Um, yeah, you you did shake off that that one rough start. And listen, you've barely pitched professionally, but you've been around the game enough to know that you're going to have bad outings, right? So in some ways, it's yeah. a good test to see, 
okay, well, that didn't go well. That's that's going to happen in the big leagues for certain. Yeah. How do mm-hmm. I wash that off and then get back to work and, and make those adjustments? And it seemed like you've, you've learned that lesson pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about the usage of, of all of your stuff, because you do have four legitimate pitches. And one of the things when I talked to, to Preston Mattingly about you, and one of the reasons to move you up is you could have stayed down in low A based on your age and experience level. There wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. But you also could have just dominated with the fastball and slider that you had then. So, it was, you know, they wanted to challenge you, see how you react to the challenge, but also it kind of forced you to start using those pitches more. Like, what was that learning curve like in terms of, okay, yes, I understand I need to use my curve and change up more, but here in Reading, if I don't, I'm in trouble. So you, you actually started doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was crazy to see too, um, especially the change up specifically, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of hitters had the tendency to kind of cheat to that heater um, and try to ambush it early because they know I was going to throw it early. Uh, but once I kind of would start to flash the change up a little bit, um, it kind of backed them up off the heater. So uh, it was kind of hard to throw like a change up in low A just because, you know, I was blowing fastballs by people and it was easy to throw just those two pitches. I would say Jersey, it was more of, you know, it was, it was a three. It was adding a curveball, but still not as much change up usage. Uh, and then Redding was kind of when I learned like, all right, like I need to go to this. You know, if I was getting there on the heater, it was like being able to go to that and being comfortable. Um, a lot of times it was to lefties. Um, and that was kind of the, the starting point of it. But then uh, as, you know, we went on, there were a couple of times where I was going right on right and it just kind of came naturally. Um, so especially like next year going into that, um, like I'm comfortable with throwing it to both sides. Yeah, at a certain point, I would imagine it goes from, this is a pitch I have, it's usable to it being an actual weapon that you could mm-hmm. use to your advantage as opposed to uh, I got to throw it because they're making me throw it. Yeah. Um, the, And one of the other things is, you know, and I don't know if you discovered that this year with all the success you had, but there are times where it doesn't matter how many pitches you have, not all of them are going to be working every day, right? You may be in a bullpen and be like, wow, the, the sliders, nope, just it's not as sharp today. So having four to choose from gives you more options. Is that something that, that you, you learned at any point this year? Yeah, that's always been a thing. Um, and like, I've always been in a mindset where it's like, yeah, you, at least if you're using three, that's kind of been my main thing was, was try to always use three. Um, uh, and then in case one of those three isn't working, then you have that fourth. So it's kind of like a replacement thing. Uh, so it's always just nice kind of have those options because you know, you're not always going to have everything working. So when you do hit that, um, you do hit that roadblock, you are able to pull something out of your back pocket, at least, you know, at least try to throw that and, and have something else to go to something else to lean on. You finished the year in Reading, and I'm curious, you know, how much had you heard or been told about the hitting friendly environment, shall we say, of Reading, Pennsylvania? And how much did you have to shut that out so you didn't try to do something different? Honestly, I hear more about it after the fact. Um, I wasn't really hearing uh, all that much about it. I did have an experience, though, where, I mean, we would see, like, there were balls flying, and, and I couldn't tell I couldn't tell if that was, like, all right, these are the double-A hitters or not, so I was still kind of just getting used to it. Uh, but, like, after the fact, now looking back and, you know, hearing stuff like that, it does make sense. You know, because balls, any, any ball that wasn't just hit straight up had a chance. It didn't hurt your numbers-wise, so clearly you were able to still do your thing 
you know, you, you see sometimes in other hitter friendly plays back, you know, in the California league and, and uh, you know, Reno or, or Vegas places like that, or pitchers kind of get out of whack because you got to get outs, even though you're trying to develop and get to the big league. So to, to not lose that mindset uh, is a little bit of a challenge, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was kind of blind to it. So. Well, it's probably probably for the better. That, that's the whole ignorance is bliss thing, I think. <laughs> um, uh, when you talk that, so uh, at that, ask you, I don't, you know, your your knowledge of prospect history here, but you are the sixth high school pitcher since two thousand to be drafted in the first round and make it to Double A in his first full season. Do you know any of the other pitchers? No, I haven't looked into it. It's it's a it's a pretty pretty good list. It's led by. Um, this lefty named Clayton Kershaw. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, Zach Greinke. He's had a pretty good career. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. Those are the two headliners. Chad Billingsley, who made an all-star team. Dylan Bundy, who's pitched a bunch in the big leagues. Actually, Dylan Bundy made it up to the big leagues in his first full season out of high school, which is kind of bonkers. And then Forrest Whitley is the is the most recent. He's had a yeah. lot of injuries. But um, that's a, a – it's a first of all, it's a very short list. So – are, do you appreciate how rare it is for someone your age to not only pitch well enough, but to kind of be trusted and allowed to move that quickly? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great to kind of just, and, and, you know, give all the credit to Preston. Uh, he's done a really good job uh, with anyone on our farm. And he's kind of, you know, his motto was, you know, if you're succeeding at one level, like we're not scared to bump you up and then, you know, put you to the challenge. So, um, I mean, it was definitely great. It was kind of cool to see, you know, go all the way from, low a to double a all within the year and you know kind of just see those different steps and see all that within one year um so i mean definitely yeah definitely appreciate it i you know there were those of us internally were like well they should just put you in the bullpen now in philadelphia you could clearly get big league hitters out that said i'm sure you have things to work on other than just innings and reps and things like that i think where you've got maybe 100 professional innings under your belt what are some of the things even with the success it wasn't you weren't in Reading for that long. What are some of the things that you saw? You're like, all right, I'm getting closer. Here are the things I need to 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 work on. So when that call does come, uh, I'm ready and can and stay up there. Yeah, uh, change up usage. You know, obviously we're making progress with it, but um, still want to use that a little more. And just still always always trying to tweak the slider and and make it tighter and almost almost kind of going like a cutter-ish type thing, well, especially when I was going to two strikes, is really just, you know, being able to throw it hard because I feel like the loopy, you know, the loopy slider, it's it's, it's hard to have success with. Uh, so, you know, hard, nowadays harder is better. Uh, so that was, that's kind of a big thing. That was something all year, and we're going to continue upon that this offseason and go into spring training um, is really just kind of throwing that slider harder and, and continue to get ahead in counts and, and be able to work both sides of the plate. No, I know that's you know, your ultimate goal. That's why you're doing this. Do you have to pump the brakes a little bit? I mean, you get to double A and, you know, as a, as a young person, you're being like, but this is easy. I'm like, get me there tomorrow. Get me there yesterday. Do you have to pump the brakes with yourself at all and be like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'm just starting this process. Yeah. A little bit. Um, you know, it's easy to kind of look forward, but then again, honored professional innings. So um, like, especially this year, it was just jumping from maybe 60 high school innings to uh, 103 this year. Uh, so that was kind of a big jump and, and, you know, we're still making those baby steps to where, you know, MLB guys are going, you know, 150, almost 200 innings. Uh, so progressively just getting up to that point and working that big load and, or that uh, workload and, and trying to, you know, stay healthy within 
that whole year. Just a couple more I'm with Andrew Painter, our pipeline pitching prospect of the year. I know you take pride in so the the little things. It's not just the stuff and throwing strikes, but uh, being a good athlete on the mound, fielding your position. You know, I think not everyone understands the work that goes into that, but I would imagine that's also something that's been sort of natural to you. And then they may see you and think, well, that guy's a pitcher clearly because you're, you know, six, seven, six, eight. But like, how much pride do you take in having a good pickoff move? I and mean, you probably surprise people with the fact that you move as well as you do. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I definitely don't take it for granted. Uh, it, it definitely helps out, especially uh, this year in Reading. I had uh, a good amount of pickoffs. So it just kind of makes it easier uh, when you are able to hold guys. And I, I think that's that's something that's overlooked. You know, as a pitcher, I think everything is like, all right, you know, metrics and spin rate and below and, and getting guys out. And like, yeah, of course, that's that's baseline. But what happens when you do get someone on? So being able to, like, hold runners on is something that I've always taken pride in and, uh, you know, continuously work on and, and, and varying holds and stuff. Um, so, it's, I mean, it was great to see, you know, that paying dividends this year in double A, you know, being able to keep people from being aggressive on the base, base paths. Now, I heard a story that when you were in high school, you used to get behind the plate in practice and, and take it. Is this, is this a true story? Yeah, I was just, you know, I was trying to have fun. Uh, we were missing a backup uh, catcher, so figured I'd help out and uh, be a bullpen catcher. And then I was like, the bullpen catching, yeah, it's all right, but let me get out there and let me take uh, field outfield. I think the Phillies would probably kill you if you tried to do that uh, any, any time right now. Um, what kind of pop time? Are we talking here? Uh, off the record, we didn't have anything. You know, I'm thinking like 185, probably something around there. Yeah, I mean, pick an elite level time if you're going to, you know, make something up that you didn't know the time of. So, you're yeah, gonna... you know, maybe down to 17 on a good day, but, uh, you know, there's, you can't ask anyone. <laughs> there's a lot of you to unwind. So I would imagine it would take some time just to, to you know, to, to get into the line <laughs> position. Now, I know it was for fun and things like that, but I think it, does say a little something about your athleticism. I was, I was uh, joking. It was like the only thing that would have been better for you then is if you could have caught yourself in a game, you know, like Bugs Bunny style. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's always, I mean, that's always been a thing. I played basketball in high school. I was always, you know, running around. Uh, dad wouldn't want to play football, but I was always, you know, trying to throw the football and do stuff like that. So, you know, growing up, I was constantly moving, and, and especially in South Florida, there was always nice weather. So there was always something to do. So I kind of just continued up until here. You, you mentioned you mentioned basketball because I think you and I talked about this a little bit in spring training because between you and and Mick Abel, like you guys could put together a pretty good front court there. Who plays who plays where? If you you know you had some guesses back then. I'm wondering now that you've gotten to know each other even better, um, and and touch that's half joke, but also touch on how great it was to have someone like Mick going through this process with you, and then who plays where on the front court. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, it was great. Uh, we had two stops together. I met him up in Jersey and then we both went up to Reading together. So, I mean, it was great to kind of have someone to lean on. Um, and someone that shared, you know, such similar backgrounds, you know, both high school guys, um, taken pretty close together and, uh, just kind of having that background and being able to connect, you know, pre-draft and, and on the circuit and stuff like that. And, you know, throw, throw the same pitches, um, pretty similar profile. Um, and it's just nice because you kind of, you know, push each other. And like a lot of times when we're throwing, it's, it's consistent, like working on, you know, like different pitches and, and he'll always have feedback for me and, you know, I, I'll have feedback for him. 
Um, so it's great to kind of just, and like earlier on, he was pitching before me, he was pitching like Fridays and I was on Saturday. So it's nice to read hitters and be able to pick up everything that he was doing and, and kind of just tone in on, on how he was working hitters and everything from there, other than being able to take something away from his start uh, into mine the next day and being able to talk to him before that. Um, so, I mean, that was great, really just being able to have someone to lean on and be able to communicate that. Um, on the court, you know, I'm st I, th I think I said I'd probably run center. I'd probably run five, he'd probably run four, three. Still gonna, I'm still going to stick with that um, as much as I want to run the one. I don't, I don't know if they'd let me do that. I mean, if you were a catcher, I mean, in high school, why not run the one? That's what I'm saying. Magic Johnson made an entire career as a point guard at 6'9", so you can do it too. I'll do it. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us here on the MLB Pipeline podcast. Congratulations on the award, and we look forward to seeing uh, continued greatness from you in the years to come. Thank you, Gabby. We'll be right back after this break. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And thanks very much to Andrew Painter for joining us on the episode today. Our 2022 Pipeline Pitching Prospect of the Year. Great season and a great interview. Um, now let's turn to the Hitting Prospect of the Year. And while uh, the Pitching Prospect of the Year decision was a pretty easy one, uh, there were certainly uh, several uh, outstanding performances on the mound this year, but that that was a relatively easy decision, especially compared to the decision on the hitting side, um, where is it fair to say that the – were there three clear-cut finalists in your estimation? Yeah. Or, or would you even say – Yeah, I, I would say two – yeah, actually, I've, I went in looking at it thinking there might only be two – but I think when looking at it more carefully, the the sort of three quote unquote finalists all deserve to be considered. Yeah. So in the end, we went with uh, the previously accidentally mentioned Gunnar Henderson uh, of the Orioles, who just had a ridiculous season. Um, as a matter of fact, I, when I accidentally conflated. Gunnar Richardson and and uh, Gunnar Richardson. Oh my what god! Are you doing? <laughs> it's fifty dollars in fines. Where does Richard come from? Where did Richard? Gunnar Henderson and Heston Kerstad or Keston Herstad. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, what Jason didn't tell you is he he has this phobia of calling him Keston Herstad instead of Heston Kerstad. So I think that's why he called him Gunnar Henderson Gunner, earlier, so he didn't have to. Say his name, and I don't. I'm, I'm trying Gunner. to figure out who. I'm trying to figure out who Gunnar Richardson is. So. <laughs> Trevor Tremaine. Uh, nice. 
uh, the, the reason that's I, an inside joke right there. <laughs> Please continue. I I, I uh, said earlier that the reason that I said his name was because I was at that time reading a tweet that was about to go out, which said that he was named our hitting prospect of the year uh, in a season in which he didn't face a pitcher younger than him, um, which is pretty wow. pretty incredible. Uh, he just uh, you know scaled that system, ended up in the big leagues. I don't know. Did we have? Do you guys happen to know what we had as his ETA heading into this year? Like, did we even? Did we think that it was possible that we probably? I probably said twenty three because he did well in Double A last year. You know, right? He didn't control the strikes then, so I bet you went twenty three also. Yeah, because I think probably my guess. I was like, all right, even if he starts to figure things out, it's half the year in Double A, maybe half the year in Triple A, and then next year he impacts the big leagues. So yeah, I mean, the other two finalists. Ellie De La Cruz, Ellie De La Richardson of the uh, Reds, Ellie De La Cruz of the Reds, and Corbin Carroll of the D-backs. And Ellie had probably the gaudiest numbers. You know, there were there were times we were keeping out, keeping an eye out. Like he could be thirty thirty, he could be, you know, he could be thirty forty, he could be thirty fifty. I mean, you know, benchmarks that we have very rarely seen in the minors ever. Um, and then Corbin Carroll, I think a little more similar to Gunnar Henderson. Is that fair to say in, in terms of, you know, guys that climb the ranks and then, you know, put up numbers in the big leagues too. Um, but in the end, well, with a combination of Henderson doing it across multiple levels and at the age at, at which he did it. Um, but three fantastic seasons here. What, what, what set our winner apart? For you guys, yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because I think when we first started to discuss it, I in, initially it was like, oh, I think Ellie De La Cruz is going to be the guy, and then I started looking at the numbers a little more carefully. And listen, Ellie De La Cruz had a ridiculous season, and I think in any other year, he, he would have been the choice, or in a lot of other years. And if he, we had decided on him, uh, what he did was astounding, and I think that the. Uh, the the fact of the matter is that Gunnar Henderson is less than a year older than Ellie De La Cruz, who made it to Double A, didn't perform great in Double A, but still like to do what he did at that age and the numbers you you pointed out were were outlandish. But you know, Gunnar Henderson made it to the big leagues, performed in the big leagues, isn't that much older, and that biggest piece, as as Jim was pointing out. Last year, the one thing that he didn't do all that well, especially as he moved up the ladder, was control the strike zone. And he knew that that was something he needed to work on. I mean, I talked to him. It turned out to be his last day in Double A when he was already showing improvements on that. He knew that that was what he needed to work on, and he just continued to do that. He, you know, he he he's drawn more than ninety walks combined. He also was twenty twenty. Um, and you know, some of his numbers were actually slightly better than De La Cruz's and looking at them side by side like that, uh, made for me, made him the, the choice. Uh, and you know, Corbin Carroll had a very good year and we shouldn't discount him, but it was really to me, those, those two that I was looking at more closely. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say Carroll was third for me too. I I think if De La Cruz had finished a little stronger, I, I don't think he homered in the last three weeks of the season. If, if he had maybe finished on a little bit of a tear, or gotten to the, I don't have, you're Mr. 2020, Jason. The last guy who had a 30 homer, 50 steal season in the minors. Was it Jose Cardinal? 
Jose Carnell seems to be the answer to a lot of these questions. I think they're <laughs> one in 81 and one in 61. Was it Willie Rayford? Did he go 30 50? Royster? Royster, yeah. Did he go 30 50? Willie Richardson. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, like, yeah, I think if Ellie De La Cruz had finished a little stronger, but just the way that Gunner finished and in the big leagues too. Um, but yeah, I, I think in a, in a, like, like depending on the competition in a given year, that any of those three guys had a season that was worthy of winning the award. All right, here's a question for you guys. And Jim, you'll have to contemplate this more approximately a year from now when you're working on your story to rank rookies uh, based on their long-term value, which you're doing for this year's rookie class now. But these guys won't be involved because they still have their rookie status. Who do you take? You got to take one of these guys in the long run. I take Gunnar Henderson. I think he might be the best hitter to three, and he plays on the dirt. Um, so the, the, you know, I think he's a better hitter than Ellie De La Cruz and I take him playing on the dirt over Corbin Carroll. That's my, you know, nitpicking to, to take on. So I would take Gunnar Henderson if I could have any of the three guys for long-term value. Jonathan. I, I like having the number two pick in this draft. <laughs> um, that's like, tough. You, you, no, can, you, know you can take a pick. Too. It's just, who do you, who would you take? This no, I guy? know. I know. I'm just, so, I, I mean, I think I would, I, I would lean towards Gunnar Henderson also, um, I do think that Ellie De La Cruz is, is, will make some adjustments and the plate discipline will get enough better where those tools are going to play. Um, you know, and I, I keep feeling that Corbin Carroll is getting the short, short shrift here. I think he's just going to steadily continue to put up very, very good numbers. Um, but both of them have the chance to stay on the dirt. Uh, so I, I think I would probably also give a slight edge to, to Gunnar Henderson. What about you, Jason? Uh, I was trying, I was, Going to quickly transition to talk about our uh, the rest of our pro- prospect team of the year before you could ask me that. You, you beat me to it. I don't, you know, I for some reason I want to I want to go with Corbin Carroll, and I can't quite put my finger on why. Because um, his name's easiest to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right, so the, these three guys uh, were among the first team on our prospect team of the year. Uh, the rest of the team looks like this. Catcher Andy Rodriguez, uh, who slashed 323, 407, 590, uh, the Pirates' number six prospect and number 98 overall. At first base, Kyle Manzardo, not on the top 100 prospects list, but is the Rays' number six prospect. At second base, Emmanuel Valdez, another non-top 100 prospect who had a huge year. Boston's number 18 prospect, 28 home runs, 107 RBIs, uh, slash 296, 376, 542. Uh, Brett Beatty was our uh, third base prospect uh, on the first team. The Mets' number two prospect and number 18 overall. Ellie De La Cruz at short, Carroll in the outfield along with Vaughn Brown, uh, who I think had one of the, the best seasons of anyone. Um, would he have potentially been uh, in the top five and considering hitting prospects of the year? Or It's tough because to me, I guess just the way we did things at Baseball America with our minor league player of the year award, like prospecting goodness yeah. was a significant factor. And Vaughn Brown's a prospect. But, like, for an award like this, to me, it's an elite prospect. Like, Matt Mervis had a great year, too. He led the minors, I think, in total bases and extra base hits. I wouldn't have picked Matt Mervis for prospect 
or hitting prospect of the year, I guess what I'm trying to say, say prospect hitter of the year. So like for me, no, I mean, if you're going on pure numbers, Von Brown, just on the, you know, Mm -hmm. slash line had the best slash line in the minors and he hit 23 homers and he stole 44 bases. Um, But he was also, he was 24. He didn't play in double A barely at the end of the year, but he got to most of his damage in a ball. So like I, me personally, great year. I think he belongs on this team. I would have had a hard time saying he's the hitting prospect of the year. All right. And then the final outfielder on the team, Jackson Churio, maybe didn't put up as gaudy of numbers as some of these guys that we've talked about, but you know, you have to consider that he did it at just 18 years old uh, across a high a and double a. And I said the numbers weren't gaudy, but you know, 288, 342, 538 with 20 home runs and 16 stolen bases, um, you know, and just rose up the ranks uh, kind of unparalleled with anyone else this year. Uh, and then Gunnar Henderson, we slotted him in as the DH on the team. And then in addition to Andrew Painter, the left-handed pitching prospect of the year is Ray's number seven prospect, Mason Montgomery. Uh, there's also a second team. That story, you can find it on MLB.com slash pipeline. Not going to run through the uh, second team here, but definitely go check that out. And uh, guys, why don't we? Oh, do we have a rel- Oh, I almost left out the reliever of the year. And Eric Torres is mad. Oh, man. Sorry, Jason's Eric. bias against Kansas State products. It's a well-known bias. I've spent some time in Manhattan. That's a, I like Manhattan. It's not true. Uh, yeah, Eric Torres, Angels, number 28 prospect, went uh, had 22 saves, 1.59 ERA, uh, 143 average against, and a .94 whip. And then you can go check out the second team on MLB.com slash pipeline. All right, let us move on to our question from the mailbag. This one comes from, oh, this is a, a repeat performer. Yep. But not Stevie D. Not the not not the repeat performer, but a repeat performer uh, at Balls and Gutters uh, Twitter handle asks if Nick Gonzalez does well again in the AFL, does it hold the same weight as last year? Does it prove that the struggles in spring were injury related? So Gonzalez was out here last year and had a good fall league. If he does it again, does it prove that his struggles in the spring were injury related? Uh, you know. I don't think it'll carry the same weight as last year. Yes, the injuries have really hurt his uh, his production. He may just be a slow starter. So, you know, this year he, he got out of the gate starting slowly and then he got hurt. Um, so, again, he only played 74 games this year. Um, he did hit well down the stretch again. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he goes out and swings the bat very well in the fall league. But, you know... I don't know, Jim, maybe you feel differently, but like last year it was his first year of pro ball. He got hurt. He came back, you know, he came back second half of the year, may have been the best hitting prospect in minor league baseball. And he carried that over and we got excited and maybe we put too much weight into his fall league performance. But this year, you know, he didn't hit, he wasn't hitting well before he got hurt. Um, you know, he's 23 now. He's going to be 24. It's not like he's old. I think it's important for him to get reps 
and, and get himself going. So hopefully next year he can be the hitter we think he's capable of. But I, I, I'm, won't be as excited by a strong Nick Gonzalez fall league showing as I was a year ago. Well, I would be as excited because I had him on my total base team. No, that's year. fair. I had him last year and I have him again this year. But no, I, I agree. I don't think the AFL Keeper League proves anything <laughs> just because, you know, as we've talked about many times, the hitters are way ahead of the pitchers. There aren't a lot of top pitching prospects in the league. The ball flies here. Um, a lot of times the best pitchers don't even stay here for the full season. So it's just a very, very offensive-minded league. So I, w- like, I agree. We did get excited. Now, we also got excited, I think, watching him hit like he did because he was also the best, you know, one of the best hitters in his draft class, number six overall pick. He might be the only player in NCAA Division I history to lead that level in batting one year and homers another, even though the homers was a shorter pandemic season. He was Cape Cod League MVP, so he proved himself with wood bat. So his pedigree was very strong. And then when we all saw him rake last year, like, okay, that, that's the Nick Gonzalez everybody knows and loves. Um, so, you know, he did finish strong. I would, I mean, obviously, selfishly hope he has a big AFL and think he will because <laughs> I took him in the second round of our total base draft. But, yeah, I, I don't think it would be quite the same because we've seen it before. Um, and like I said, I, you know, if I'm, I'm really parsing the words here, I don't think AFL proves anything. It's more you – know, I will say – it's interesting, you know, guys like Logan O'Hoppy, who weren't really on our radar last year, you know, you know, he obviously is a top 100 guy now. Curtis Mead's a top 100 guy right now. You know, Nelson Velasquez got to the big leagues. Caleb Killian got to the big leagues. So, you know, you can, you can break out here in a way. But if, you know, Nick Gonzalez hits 380 with six home runs in the fall league, I don't, I'm not going to necessarily be like, okay, he's a lock to be an all-star. So I, I think you and I are of the same mind here, Jonathan. You know, Gonzalez did hit well down the stretch in September. He slashed 302, 415, 566 out of 981 OPS compared to April and May uh, when he was 749, 738 OPS. All right. Thanks to Balls and Gutters for that question. Thanks to Andrew Painter for joining us on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. Beware the haboobs. See you next week.